the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Sam Maupin is engineering. Today on the program, we'll hear a conversation with Dr. Gregory Jantz. So Much to Live For is the title of his book. And we'll also consider what Victor Davis Hansen suggests may be the last days of the Republic. That's followed by a question mark, but he raises some pretty interesting thoughts in the context of things that are going on right now that undermine national security and the future. Well, yesterday was Election Day, and according to the Oregon Right to Life, the pro-life movement here in Oregon demonstrated its strength in the 2022 primary election with several high-profile victories. Oregon Right to Life PAC endorsed or recommended 80 candidates in this primary election, most of whom won their races or qualified for runoffs in November. Uh, Says Lois Anderson, who is the executive director of Oregon Right to Life, the pro-life field is in this primary election was impressive and we are confident in their ability to succeed in the fall. Christine uh, Drazen uh, appears to have won the gubernatorial race emerging from the competitive field of strong candidates in Lane County. Ryan uh, Senega and David Lavelle, they've uh, slight leads in high, uh, highly contested Commissioner races, any lead in Lade County constitutes a significant pro-life win. Early ballot counts indicate that Mary Starrett uh, was set to hold her position on the Yamhill County Commission without a runoff in November. She previously won in 2014 and again in 2018. Uh, Lois Anderson continued saying the pro-life wins in nonpartisan contests substantiate what we've been saying for years. Oregonians don't support the extreme abortion policies currently in place. It's time to reflect this widespread consensus in Oregon law. And with the potential of uh, the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade through their decision making in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, that will be very important. Well, the primary election ended two weeks after the leak of the draft opinion from the Supreme Court on the same. If the draft opinion holds, the court will overturn Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And that decision would uh, return authority to state government to enact regulation. The leak brought abortion to the forefront of the conversation during the final stretch of the primary. Yet these pro-life uh, candidates uh, succeeded. Well, Oregon's 2022 primary election has come and gone. The first round of results was posted shortly after the ballot drop-off deadline at 8 p.m. last night. Um, in the governor's race, the Democrat who uh, won the uh, party's nomination is Tina Kotek. No surprise there. This is a closed primary in Oregon. The winner of the race uh, will become the Oregon Democratic Party's nominee for governor on the November ballot. Incumbent Governor Kate Brown is prevented from uh, by term limits from running again this year. So Tina Kotek uh, will, in fact, represent the Democrats on the ticket for the governor's race. On the um, Republican side, 
Uh, Christine Drazen with 23.78% of the vote and a very crowded field. She will represent Republicans on the Oregon ballot. For Oregon Labor Commissioner, incumbent Val Hoyle is not running for re-election as Labor Commissioner because she's running for the U.S. House in Oregon's 4th Congressional District. This is a nonpartisan race. It's um, uh, if any candidate gets more than 50 percent of the vote, they'll be uh, they'll win outright. But Christina Stevenson at 47 percent failed to reach that 50 percent threshold. So she will face Sherry Helt, uh, who uh, garnered 19 percent of the vote for the Oregon Labor Commissioner. In Portland, the city council race, the seat's currently held by uh, Commissioner Dan Ryan, who's running for re-election. He did, in fact, uh, win that race and is expected to hold the seat without a a necessary runoff uh, in November. Uh, Portland City Commissioner uh, Position 2 at 57.5%. Dan Ryan will hold that position. City Council Position 3, this seat is currently held by Commissioner Joanne Hardesty. She's running for re-election and faced some controversy in the late days leading up to the election. Uh, there's going to be a runoff election between Joanne Hardesty and the uh, to-be-determined opponent. Uh, Joanne Hardesty garnered 41% of the vote. And then Renee Gonzalez and Vadim Mazaskri, uh, 24, 23 percent of the vote, respectively. In the U.S. House, the incumbent U.S. Representative uh, Susan Suzanne Bonamici, Cliff Bentz, Earl Blumenauer and Kurt Schrader are running for reelection. Representative Peter DeFazio is retiring, creating an open race in Oregon's fourth congressional district. There's also an open race in the sixth congressional district, which was newly created after the 2020 census. In the uh, first district, Suzanne Bonamici um, was uh, was successful with 88.9 percent of the vote. Uh, in U.S. House District um, 2, uh, Joy Yetter, the Democrat with 70.7% of the vote, uh, and the Republican primary with 76.2% of the vote, Cliff Bentz. Uh, in U.S. House District uh, 3, Earl Blumenauer with 94.9% of the vote will represent Democrats. And on the Republican side, Joanna Harbor with 100% of the vote, 10,000 votes um being cast in U.S. Uh, House District Four, the Democratic primary Val Hoyle with 65 percent of the vote, and again, this is a closed primary, so that re- uh, represents Democrats who voted for Val Hoyle. And the Fourth District, representing Republicans, uh, Dan Ryan, with 57.5 percent of the Republican vote. Um, in the City Council Position Three, the seat is currently uh, well. I mentioned that already. Anyway, U.S. House. Um, Fifth District Democratic primary, Jamie McLeod Skinner at 61 percent, Kirk Schrader with 38.7 percent. They will face off in the general election. And uh, in the um, Republican primary, um, Lori Chavez Derimber with 42 percent of the vote. In U.S. House District uh, Democrat primary, Andrea Salinas with 37.8 percent of the Democrat vote. And Mike Erickson or Ron Noble, it looks like Mike Erickson, but we don't have a final there. He garnered 34.6% of the vote with early counting. In the U.S. Senate, one of um, Oregon's two U.S. Senator seats is on the ballot this year, and incumbent Ron Ryden is running for re-election. He's held that position for, what, 40 years? It's, uh, once again, a closed primary. Ron Wyden won his party's uh, nomination. Uh, Joe Ray Perkins and Darren Harbick 
Uh, both ran on the Republican ticket. Um, Joe Ray Perkins with 32.5 percent. Darren Harbick with 30.6 percent. That hasn't yet been called. But at this point, it appears that Joe Ray Perkins will face off with Ron Wyden, who received 90 percent of his party's support. We're going to take a quick break. We'll uh, mention a couple more races and then move on to other headline news. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just reviewing some of the races in yesterday's primary election. In Multnomah County, two seats on the Multnomah County Board of Commissioners are on the ballot this year. One in which uh, is the one of which I should say is the chair. The position of Multnomah County Sheriff is also on the ballot or was incumbent commissioner uh, Shashila Jayapal is uh, running for reelection. But incumbent chair Deborah Kafori and Sheriff Mike Reese are not incumbent commissioner. Jessica Vega Peterson is running for the chair position rather than her current seat. These are all nonpartisan races. If any candidate gets more than 50 percent of that vote, they'll win the seat outright. If no one gets there, then there's a runoff, as you probably already know. Uh, Let's see. In Multnomah County for the commissioner uh, chair, Jessica Vega, 40.4 percent of the vote. So there will be a runoff with Sharon uh, Mirnan, who uh, garnered 19.4 percent of the vote for Multnomah County Commissioner District 2. uh, Jayapal um, with 78.7 percent will retain that position. Nicole Morrissey O'Donnell won the uh, Multnomah County Sheriff's vote with 62.7% of the vote. And I believe that's the first time a woman has ascended to that position. In Washington County, there were three positions on the Washington County Board of Commissioners on the ballot this year, one of which is the at-large chair position. Incumbents uh, Catherine Harrington, Pam Treese, and Jerry Wiley uh, were all running for re-election. Uh, these are, once again, nonpartisan races. And if you Exceed 50 percent. No runoff. If you don't. Well, you know, the obvious Catherine Harrington uh, for Washington County Commissioner Chair, 54.8 percent. She will be the Washington County Commission Chair in the um, Commission District. Number two, Pam Treese garnered 76.4 percent. There will not be a runoff. And for the District 4 Commissioner position, Jerry Willie, 100% of the vote, there won't be a runoff there. In Clackamas County, two positions on the uh, Clackamas County Board of Commissioners were on the ballot. Uh, incumbents Paul uh, Savis and Sonia Fisher were both running for re-election. Paul Savis uh, only garnered 42.8% of the vote, so he will face a runoff with uh, Libra Ford, who garnered 20.2%. And for position five, Ben West, 47.3%, and Sonia Fisher with 34%. Uh, once again, there will be a runoff in that race. As far as the ballot measures, the Washington County measure um, uh that would undo the county's ordinance 878 and prevent it from going into effect. Uh, It prohibits the sale of tobacco products, including synthetic nicotine products like vape pens to people under 21. It also bans the sale of flavored tobacco products in general. It failed uh, in uh, this effort. Also measure 34313, the uh, Beaverton school bond uh, knows had it by 53.6%, 46.6%. Four were in favor of that measure, so it failed as well. Meanwhile, Governor Kate Brown, for at least for a period of time, uh, faces the uh, end of her reign as um, governor, uh, so she doesn't mind, um, well, 
some of what she says to students. Yesterday, I should say citizens. Yesterday, she warned Oregonians to get ready for a bad forest fire season. She blames climate change, but it's more complex than that. Proper management, logging, replanting, clearing fuel from forests, all of which the governor could do. Forest scientist Dr. Bob Zybach points out that from 1952 to 1987, that's 35 years in all, only one fire, uh, forest fire in all of western Oregon was greater than 10,000 acres. Since 87, Oregon has had more than 30 such fires, several larger than 100,000 acres. Well, the 2020 Labor Day fires alone covered more than one million acres. And the difference is logging. Now, that's um, akin to a swear word in the state of Oregon. Kate Brown doesn't like it. Lots of Oregonians don't. And as governor, she's chosen forest management designed to let all those trees burn rather than uh, forest. She tells um, citizens to get ready uh, to see the state burn. So that's what you have, among other things, to look forward to during this uh, summer of rage that is approaching. Meanwhile, the average national retail price for a gallon of regular gasoline is projected to surpass $6 by the summer. That's according to the recent J.P. Morgan research note. On Wednesday, the national average hit another record, reaching $4.56 per gallon. That's the average here in Oregon. I know we're already paying significantly more, but that's the average according to AAA. That's already up nearly 50 cents from a month ago and $1.52 from this time last year, again, according to AAA. According to J.P. Morgan, prices could surge another 37% by August, hitting a $6.20 per gallon national average. Now, this is due to expectations of strong driving demand throughout the summer driving season, which spans from Memorial Day and lasts until Labor Day. Um, Typically, refiners produce uh, more gasoline ahead of the summer road trip season, building up inventories. However, since mid-April, gasoline inventories have fallen counter uh, seasonally and today sit at the lowest seasonal level since 2019. Well, the analysts caution that gasoline balances on the East Coast have been even tighter, uh, drawing to their uh, lowest level since 2011. Earlier this week, Los Angeles became the second metro, joining San Francisco with the average cost for a gallon of gasoline surpassing $6. And again, we very might very well might experience that here in the state of Oregon as well. Well, the Biden administration is considering shutting down the so-called disinformation board. There's been blistering criticism. Well, after the wave of backlash, the Department of Homeland Security is considering shutting down its just created disinformation governance board, uh, which was officially tasked with combating false narratives around domestic terrorism and human trafficking along the border, but which was widely interpreted as having a much broader brief uh, to monitor and possibly curtail disfavored political speech. Just three weeks after its inception, or at least its announcement, the Disinformation Board's operations have been paused. Multiple uh, officials at DHS announced uh, the reportedly um, DHS reportedly decided to shut down the board entirely on Monday and its director uh, tendered her voluntary resignation letter on Tuesday. But DHS officials quickly called her uh, to give her the option to stay on while the Homeland Security Advisory Committee determines whether to shut down the board entirely. Well, as soon as her role was announced, 
Uh, she, she, uh, she was serving as the Disfor- disinformation fellow at a think tank before joining the administration. She was harshly uh, criticized for her record of online behavior, which included her vocal discrediting of the new verified Hunter Biden laptop story, disinformation, and her support of the Christopher Steele um, a dossier, which has been discredited on the former President Trump that helped launch the Mueller uh, probe into his 2016 campaign. Well, I won't go into greater details, but a DHS spokesperson told The Post in a statement, Anita uh, Jankowitz has been subjected to unjustified and vile personal attacks and physical threats. Well, physical threats are entirely inappropriate. Uh, commenting on her very public uh, comments is appropriate within bounds, but um, she has been j- subjected to criticism for things she has actually said and were posted prominently on a various on various uh, social media platforms and other news. President Biden's administration is bra- uh, bracing for a wave of violence when the Supreme Court rules on Roe versus Wade in June. A May 13th memo from the Department of Homeland Security details ongoing investigations into threats to burn down or storm the Supreme Court building. Threats against the uh, court also um, rose last month after a draft majority opinion overturning Roe versus Wade leaked to the press. The Supreme Court is expected to hound out, hand down the ruling next month. Uh, the court's conservative justices have already faced targeted protests outside their homes following the leak. The Department of Homeland Security memo reportedly says that protests are likely to persist and may increase leading up to and following the issuing of the court's official ruling if it doesn't go their way. The memo goes on to clarify that a rhetoric supporting violent extremism does not itself constitute extremism. The mere advocacy of political or social positions, political activism, use of strong rhetoric or Generalized philosophic embrace of violent tactics does not constitute domestic violent extremism or illegal activity and is constitutionally protected, the memo reportedly reads. The DHS is committed to protecting Americans' freedom of speech and other civil rights and civil liberties, including the right to peacefully protest. Now, it's interesting they've given very wide latitude in this case surrounding the subject of abortion, but haven't been that um, generous with regard to other areas with which the administration finds disfavor. So this is a rather interesting statement that even threats of violence, uh, they are now protecting the free speech without uh, without comment. Now, we're going to take a break here, but we'll continue to work our way through some of uh, the day's news. Also, we'll be uh, hearing from Dr. Gregory Jansen, author of So Much to Live For, coming up in the second hour of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Dr. Gregory Jans. So much to live for, the title of his book published by Ravel. Well, the Dow Jones fell more than 1,200 points after disappointing retailer earnings. Poor results from the big U.S. retailer sent stocks uh, pretty much skidding Wednesday, putting Wall Street on course to extend the year's volatility. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell more than 1,200 points in the afternoon trading, down 3.3 percent. The S&P 500 dropped 3.7 percent, while the tech-focused Nasdaq composite slid 4.4 percent. It marked a U-turn from Tuesday when technology shares had led a rebound in the markets. Well, major retailers 
said their profits were hurt by rising costs, sluggish sales, and supply chain disruptions. Shares of Target sank 27% after the company posted quarterly earnings that missed analysts' expectations, putting it on track for its worst one-day performance since Black Monday in 1987. Shares of Dollar Tree, Dollar General, and Costco Wholesale were also on track for their largest declines in years. The retailers' results are uh, prompting Wall Street to wrestle uh, with the idea that the global economy could be headed for a recession, though the debate is far from settled. It's rattled stocks and other risky assets throughout the year. Well, in other news, in um, Pennsylvania, uh, the swing state high-profile GOP Senate primary is too close to call. Uh, the end of the road, Trump-endorsed uh, incumbent suffers a stunning primary loss after scandals. Madison Cawthorn loses North Carolina, the GOP House primary, after a string of missteps. The alliance is expanding as Finland and Sweden have actually officially filed NATO applications. One member nation objects. The Biden administration risks Americans' retirement accounts to push the climate agenda. And with a tough row ahead, Democrats' goal of codifying abortion rights faces major legal obstacles, according to a constitutional expert. There are potential constitutional challenges that could be raised, so says law expert Jonathan Turley. Uh, There can also be conditions that are viewed as so coercive in withholding state funds that they are considered unconstitutional. It will be interesting to see what happens next. It's certainly the debate will not be over. Fighting fat phobia, woke universities have a new social justice crusade. I would have thought they had enough on their hands, but health justice is becoming the new woke agenda item at universities across the country as uh, progressive academics try to eliminate fat phobia or the cultural stigmatization of obesity, including scrapping the word obesity itself. Biology was ridiculed as a Wyoming GOP senator was booed by college graduates, college graduates for listing the actual existence of two sexes as scientific truth. Calling the Jewish state a catastrophe, Rashida Tlaib and the squad introduced a resolution recognizing the a catastrophe of Israel's creation. Now, I'm not sure if they mean just when that happened following World War II or when God called Abraham, I'm not sure where they put that timeline, but calling it a catastrophe, calling it unfocused globalism. Senator Josh Hawley explained why he voted against the astronomical 40 billion dollar Ukraine aid bill. The senator from Missouri, a Republican, is warning that a measure by Congress to give Ukraine 40 billion dollars additional funding in its war against Russia is evidence of the administration's misplaced priorities and will be determined uh, detrimental rather to the national security of the U.S. The Senate advanced the 40 billion dollar Ukraine aid bill on Monday evening, despite opposition from a handful of Republican senators in a vote tallying 81 to 11. Offering a dog whistle? Well, MSNBC's Chuck Todd, he claims the right appeases white supremacists by crying free speech. So apparently now even free speech is considered racist by Chuck Todd. Saying it's all about slavery, the View hosts clashed over what they call the rigged electoral college, some claiming the system is based on slavery. The co-hosts of ABC's The View clashing during the debate over electoral college on Tuesday with the show's left-wing co-hosts arguing it was a rigged idea. The one dissenter was not allowed to speak. No more Mr. Nice Biden. Politico reports that the president is finally going to stop trying to work with the GOP and instead go on the attack. 
My question is, how is that different? Well, Elon Musk calls out a Twitter employee caught in a Project Veritas video mocking his Asperger's. In an immigration ruling, SCOTUS uh, ruled five to four against an illegal immigrant seeking to avoid deportation. Justice Gorsuch sided with liberal justices. The U.S. Supreme Court voted five to four on Monday to uphold a federal appellate court ruling against a man who sought to prevent his deportation after being in the United States illegally since the 90s. Uh, He entered the U.S. illegally from India with his wife three decades ago, according to court documents, applied for discretionary adjustments of status with the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Agency in 2007. The adjustments, which would have given Mr. Patel and his wife uh, green cards, was denied by the agency after it found he previously intentionally misrepresented his citizenship on a Georgia driver's license application. A kidnapping victim has been rescued. A KFC employee reportedly helped save a kidnapping victim who left a secret note. Suggesting they're out there, the Pentagon showed declassified photos and a video of an unexplained floating object at a House hearing on UFOs. On yesterday's election, the GOP turnout was high. There was an upset win in the North Carolina congressional race and a tight race for the Pennsylvania Senate. The primaries so far have yielded large Republican voter turnout, and last night was no different. A big uh, upset, according to Fox News, came from North Carolina's 11th district, where incumbent Madison Cawthorn conceded his race to Chuck Edwards. Cawthorn's uh, Tuesday night made a concession phone call to State Senator Chuck Edwards, whose legislative seat is within the House district. Edwards had the support of Senator Tom Tillis, former Texas Governor Rick Perry, and various other GOP officials. And the Pennsylvania Senate race between David McCormick and Trump-endorsed Mehmet Oz is too close to call. I think there's about 2,000 vote difference with Oz in the lead at this point, but there were still some uncounted ballots. Mariupol has fallen to Russia. Late Monday, the Ukrainian government appeared to surrender the key port city of Mariupol to the Russians. According to live war updates from the New York Times, capture of the um, Azovtal uh, Steel complex there was the deciding factor in Russia's apparent victory over the Ukrainians in their combat mission. In a brief remark to the Times, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky shared that their current goal was to prevent further casualties. We hope to save the lives of our boys, Zelensky said. Wall Street Journal says that more than 260 soldiers were taken to Russian-controlled territory on Tuesday morning after Ukraine announced the end of combat operations there video footage released by russian defense minister appeared to show that men being patted down and escorted to waiting buses some were on stretchers some wrapped in uh, bloodied bandages and many were gaunt after weeks of surviving on minimal rations Uh, one observer um, on reuters reported that um let me get this uh get this right um well nbc capturing uh, key uh, issues there um, said that the key is be- uh, because it would allow Russian forces in Crimea, the Ukrainian peninsula, it invaded and annexed in 2014 to link up with those in eastern Ukraine where Moscow has refocused its effort. Uh, Hannah Libusko published photos of buses with Ukrainian servicemen uh, from that uh, steel plant leaving Mariupol. Representative um, or I should say South Carolina is the 16th state to pass a bill preserving women's sports. 
The Washington Times reports that South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster has signed legislation barring male-born athletes from girls' and women's scholastic sports, drawing kudos from advocates for fairness in female athletics and criticism from the transgender rights and gender identity movements. The legislation signed Monday makes South Carolina the 16th state with a law requiring students to compete based on their birth or biological sex in reaction to rising concerns over male-born athletes who identify as female going up against girls and women with a decided physiological advantage. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. President Biden is taking aim at the so-called assault weapons in the wake of the Buffalo shooting. Another shooting, another call for gun control. Katie Pavlich weighs in on town hall saying, speaking from Buffalo, New York, Tuesday morning, the president claimed the ban on semi-automatic sporting rifles from 94 to 2004 cut down on violence and shooting. He made the statement while pushing for gun control after a teenager killed 10 people in a local grocery store over the weekend. Well, this is a claim the president uh, repeatedly made while attempting to take advantage of the tragedy. But according to data provided by the Department of Justice, the ban cannot be credited with reducing violence or mass shootings, which does not uh, uh, mean that the tragic events that took place uh, should be overlooked. Town Hall also reports that uh, uh, Biden said we can keep assault weapons off our streets. We've done it before. I did it when we passed the crime bill last year. Last time, which was not the case, Iraq blocked China from purchasing and controlling oil fields. Iraqi's oil ministry thwarted three prospective deals last year that would have handed Chinese firms more control over its oil fields and led to an exodus of international oil majors uh, that Baghdad wants to invest in its uh, creaking economy. Well, since the start of 2021, plans by Russia, Luke Oil and U.S. oil major ExxonMobil to sell stakes in major Deals to Chinese state-backed firms have hit the uh, the buffers after interventions from Iraq's oil ministry, according to the Iraq oil officials and executives. Breitbart weighed in, saying even with these big takeover deals blocked in 21 and 22, China still has a strong position in Iraq oil, having won most energy deals and contracts awarded over the past four years. Chinese state firms um, have secured a dominant position by undercutting the profit margins desired by most other inventors. Baghdad may not be able to keep Beijing at bay for long, as analysts told Reuters. The Western push for green energy is making it harder for Iraq to offer the kind of deals that would attract anyone but rapacious China. In a deal breaker, Elon Musk is demanding that SEC look into Twitter bot accounts. The New York Post reports that Musk is calling on the Securities and Exchange Commission to investigate Twitter's claims that less than 5% of its daily users are spam and bot accounts. Musk, the Tesla CEO who said he would back out of his $44 billion acquisition of Twitter if the company failed to prove it was adequately cracking down on spam and bot accounts, posted uh, a poll on Tuesday, 20 percent fake spam accounts, while four times what Twitter claims could be uh, much higher. My offer was based on Twitter SEC filings being accurate. And yesterday, Twitter CEO publicly refused to show proof of less than 5 percent. Now, this deal cannot move forward until he does. 
Well, the FDA greenlighted a COVID booster for children ages 5 to 11. And the Department of Homeland Security, uh, Mayorkas, visited the border one week before Title 42 is set to expire. From that story, with less than a week before the title is uh, set to expire, the um, Homeland Security Secretary and his top leaders spent Tuesday touring the South Texas border, planning, learning and preparing for what could be a surge of migrants crossing from Mexico. Um, da- the Daily Mail also reports it also um, comes the morning after Customs and Border Protection released numbers for April encounters, which is the highest yet of Joe Biden's presidency. It's very important to note that while, of course, we are preparing for the end of Title 42 based on the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's decision that it will end on the 23rd, uh, 23rd, that does not mean that the border is open beginning May 23rd, Mayorkas insisted. We continue to enforce the laws of this country, he added. He continued to remove individuals who do not qualify for relief under the laws of this country. The border security says otherwise. They are so uh, distracted by humanitarian interests that they are not in a position to prevent those crossing the border illegally and uh, those who are carrying large amounts of drugs from the southern border. A massive drug smuggling tunnel discovered between Tijuana and San Diego has been found. One Border Patrol agent said that's nothing new when we were actually uh, doing our job and weren't overwhelmed. We discovered those tunnels several times in the course of a week. Well, U.S. authorities on Monday announced the discovery of a massive tunnel stretching under the U.S. border, uh, the U.S.-Mexico border that was likely used to transport drugs undetected. The over 1,700-foot fully operational tunnel runs from Tijuana to the industrial warehouse and uh, industrial warehouse in San Diego, California. Authorities said it contains a sophisticated structural system that was likely used to smuggle heroin. And in fact, they did find some drugs on site. In yesterday's primaries, winners and losers, five states held their primary elections yesterday, which included a few notable races. The contest for Pennsylvania's GOP Senate candidate remains too close to call. As Donald Trump endorsed Dr. Mehmet Oz is neck and neck with David McCormick, a recent uh, a recount rather uh, may likely take place. The other big winner in Pennsylvania on the Republican side was state Senator Doug uh, Mastriano, who won the GOP's gubernatorial nomination. Another noteworthy race down in North Carolina saw the Republicans' youngest House representative uh, defeated, Madison Cawthorn, who disgraced himself in office, despite the fact that he had uh, been endorsed by Trump, narrowly lost the state uh, to Senator Chuck Edwards, thanks to, in large part to his own problematic behavior. Controversy surrounding him, combined with his dishonesty regarding other lawmakers, was enough to um, move Senator T- Tom Attilis to make an unusual step of endorsing Cawthorn's opponent. However, North Carolina was not all bad for Trump as another of his endorsees, Representative Ted Budd, easily won the primary for the state's GOP Senate candidate. On the Democrat side, the far left had a good night. PA's um, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman easily defeated moderate Representative Connor Lamb. While this victory likely excites the party's leftists, it might not bode well for Democrats in November. Well, April saw another um, illegal illegal border crossing record, a record number 234,088 caught uh, by U.S. Uh, Customs and Border Protection illegally entering the country. This number is the highest since the month total in at least a century of uh, records and almost surely the entirety of American history. 
The vice president has been busy breaking ties. Kamala Harris has found herself sitting in the Senate nearly as often as she did when she was a senator from California. This is due, of course, to the fact that the Senate is split 50-50 between the two parties. Thus far, just 15 months into Biden's term, Harris has voted 23 times to break ties, placing her third uh, highest at uh, of all times for U.S. vice president tiebreakers. Just John C. Calhoun with 31 and John Adams at 29 cast more tie-breaking votes. Given that it is so early in Biden's term, Harris's chances of jumping to the top of the list aren't likely, although the midterm elections may change that configuration. The Disinformation Governance Board of Ministry of Truth, or you could call it by either name, has paused and is very likely to be disbanded after only three weeks. Prosecutors say Michael Sussman manipulated and used the FBI to smear candidate Trump and gin up uh, an October surprise in 2016. A former Trump aide posted a searchable database online containing a huge trove of more than 120,000 emails from Hunter Biden's abandoned laptop. The laptop repairman says the FBI didn't seem interested in reviewing the hard drive. BLM co-founder Patrice Cullors uh, paid her baby's father $970,000 for creative services, her brother $840,000 for security, and a fellow director $2.1 million. Sending the wrong message to the wrong people, the White House dropped sanctions on Latin American dictators. Elon Musk is warring with Twitter over his buyout deal and gas prices have now topped four dollars in all 50 states for the first time in U.S. history. South Carolina has banned men from women's sports and with a new book, pediatricians are trying to ensnare kids in the gender ideology. More on that in a future date. Ukraine declared the end to the battle for Mariupol, ceding control of the key port city of uh, to Russia. On this day in history, 1642, the Canadian city of Montreal is founded by a French colonist. 1863, the siege of Vicksburg begins during Civil War ending July the 4th with a Union victory. 1896, the U.S. Supreme Court in Plessy versus Ferguson endorses separate but equal racial segregation, a concept that would be renounced 58 years later by Brown versus Board of Education. 1953, Jacqueline Cochran, 47, becomes the first woman to break the sound barrier as she pilots a Canadair F-86 Sabra jet over Rogers Dry Lake. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, Hasbro announces the United States Patent and Trademark Office has issued a trademark for the scent of Play-Doh. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour, and then we'll have a conversation with Dr. Gregory Jantz. So much to live for. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States, and its rates increased by 33 percent between 1999 and 2019. That's pre-pandemic. Yet that statistic doesn't include the number of Americans who thought about or attempted suicide. And according to Mental Health America, more than 10.3 million U.S. adults have had serious suicidal thoughts. So many people are silently hurting. Well, today we're going to talk with um, one of my favorite authors, Dr. Gregory Jansen. His latest book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. Dr. Jansen, uh, Jans rather, is a popular speaker and an award-winning author of many books, including Healing the Scars of Emotional Abuse, Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse, 
and overcoming anxiety, worry, and fear. He is the founder of the Center, A Place of Hope, which is a strategic title that really reflects um, the heart of the work that he does in the state of Washington. Again, he joins us today to talk about his book, So Much to Live for, How to Provide Help and Hope for Someone Considering Suicide. Dr. Jans, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's just plain a tough topic to talk about, but it is one, one we need to address. Well, you're absolutely right, and I take I appreciate the fact that you've taken time in your professional capacity to provide a resource for those of us who care about others who struggle, and those who are struggling can also benefit from your writing. Tell us a bit about this new project, So Much to Live For, why you felt the time was right uh, to write this particular book now. Well, Georgine, it's like I never thought I would do a book on suicide. It was just not on my radar until I began to see what's going on. Mm. And since the, the last two years, we've seen a, well, a frightening increase in suicide attempts and suicides. Um, I looked at the 12 to 17-year-old uh, age range, and we uh, know that it is now the number two um, killer is suicide, uh, the reason for death. And that's uh, just to say that is, is sounds strange. 12 to 17, uh, suicide is the second leading cause mm. of death. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, one wonders what role social media plays. You've actually written on the subject. Can you tell us if that plays a significant role uh, or an, an outsized role in uh, suicide contemplation and ultimately suicide among this young age group? Well, what we know is that it's a huge influence. We know anytime you have uh, the amount of social media that kids are immersed in, and, and you know, it kind of digitizes the brain, puts you in a, a, a daze, and, and people are what, uh, dro- uh, doom scrolling now, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah. Um, and, and we're being filled with so much negative. That's what happens with the social media. Kids are um, either uh, comparing themselves, feeling cyber bullied. Uh, it, it's not a real pleasant world to spend much time in. Uh, we know, and there's been some good studies that have shown, if you're already struggling with some depression and anxiety, uh, social media will just increase it. So um, this is what's happening with our kids. Last year, we had the highest academic failure rate ever. Mm. So this, the uh, online learning, the virtual learning did not work for our kids. So, And we have a generation, and I'm making some generalities, but uh, where they feel... Um, apathy, hopelessness about the future. Uh, We have uh, addictions dropping to younger ages. I mean, if we even look at uh, pornography on the Internet, age nine is the average age to exposure uh, to pornography on the Internet. So uh, what's happening to our kids is of huge concern. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the statistics, and I made a brief reference to at least some of the statistics about suicide, they're staggering. Can you share some of them with us to put into perspective how serious this issue is and how those of us who care about those who struggle uh, need to recognize that we can play some role in uh, in helping those who struggle? We really can. And it's something that we we don't need to shy away from as awkward as having a conversation around suicide is, that's really what we need to do. If you have somebody in your life that you're concerned about, 
you know, one of the myths is, well, if I use the word suicide, they will, um, you know, give them ideas. And actually, the opposite is true. You may be opening a door of opportunity for uh, discussion with a person that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And, you know, saying to a person, I love and care about you, and, you know, you've had some struggles here. Have you ever thought about harming yourself or killing yourself? Getting Opening up that conversation could be a lifesaver as a starting point. Well, in fact, your book is dedicated to those who struggle Uh, but also to those who care about them, giving real clear direction on what can I do. And I think that's one of the the largest frustrations that onlookers have. Is there anything I can do? Should I address it head on? And your book provides some very practical, thoughtful ways uh, that we can express our concern in a way that's constructive. And we can do that. First of all, um, if a person's really struggling and, you know, we've been, we've all kind of come through the last two years, I think it'd be fair to say chronic stress. It hasn't gone away. Yes. And uh, there's a lot of distrust out there. Um, who or what do I believe? People are probably oversaturating themselves with news and information, and, and the confusion is at all-time high. So we have a lot of fear and anxiety, plus we have... Uh, an unknown future. The future seems uh, unknown and people are very anxious. When we live with that state for a while, um, it's for some, it's just pushing them over to this despair. And to have despair means I feel hopeless, I feel helpless, and you start to have really irrational thinking. And so uh, when we have irrational thinking, our judgment's poor, we're more impulsive, and that's part of what happens. So let's look at, is there addiction? Is there something we need to do to help with the anxieties? Um, But we want to keep people off of that edge of despair. You, uh, in your practice, as well as in the book, really emphasize the notion of hope. And you uh, reference the scripture in Jeremiah that's familiar to many of us. How important is hope in uh, trying to communicate with or understand a friend or family member who's struggling with thoughts of ending their life? When I think about hope, for me, that comes when we, um, there's some faith required, but it also comes when we put together a plan and a plan of hope. And so when you're in this mode and your thinking's not clear and you feel a lot of despair, you're not really able to see that or believe it or or really create a plan. So part of what I believe in hope, and uh, by the way, this is our 38th year uh, at the center of Place of Hope. So I have seen, of course, we work with folks from all over the country. I have seen some situations on the kind of the looking at it go, this looks pretty hopeless. But I have seen lives redeemed. I have people who have had a lot of suicide struggle there is a turning point, or there can be, mm-hmm. where you go, you know what, that's really behind me, and I am so, so glad I'm alive. And so that's what I believe, but sometimes we really need help uh, because we're not thinking clearly, um, we don't see that, and we need somebody to come alongside us and really begin to speak truth uh, to us. Yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations on 38 years. That is considerable. Isn't that 
It that is. sounds funny to say that, but it's true. <laughs> well, you opened the book talking about the intersection of four words that wouldn't necessarily be thought to go together. Tell us about how these four words are linked, future, depression, hope, and suicide. Yes. Well, future. Uh, we do have a promise, and you you shared the Jeremiah twenty nine eleven that says uh, that the Lord has promised us a future and a hope. Well, um, when we're in a deep, dark despair and, and depression, we don't see that hope. And, you know, there's fear has a spiritual side to it, by the way. If we're full of fear and anxiety, it's like there's a fear stronghold. And uh, fear causes us to really um, think irrationally. Fear distorts reality. Anxiety distorts reality. So when I think about a future, okay, we've got to have a plan for anxiety. We've got to have a plan for depression. How am I going to manage these things that are really difficult uh, from a place of a future that has hope? And so when I, when I look at this, okay, hope really does come when I have a plan. And Jeremiah twenty nine eleven says, for the plans I have for you. Okay, plans. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Now, we may need a counselor. We may need to get some intensive type help to come alongside us and to really help us with that piece. Um, sometimes if there's addiction in our life, uh, you know, that's bringing us down more. Uh, maybe there's past trauma, uh, but maybe there's something that's happened that you feel like, man, I'm, I'm defective or I'm, I'm not, uh, you know, able to see any different kind of future or any healing. So, and I just want to acknowledge there's many folks that feel like, oh, that's true. Um, this doesn't really apply to me because that's, that's kind of those lies we begin to tell ourselves. Yeah. yeah. We're talking with Dr. Gregory Jans, his latest book, So Much to Live For. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with award-winning author and popular speaker, Dr. Gregory Jans. He equips readers in his latest book, So Much to Live For, to step up and speak out to those who may be considering suicide. In his new book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. And I think many of us have experienced the loss of a friend or loved one. We maybe had no idea they were contemplating suicide, and yet... Uh, it occurred. And so this is such an important resource uh, to consider what role might I play in helping come alongside someone who is struggling. Now, statistically, some people are more vulnerable to suicide than others. Who are those people? And help us kind of understand um, sort of the background, if you will. Yes, there are some that are more vulnerable. And this uh, actually is, is broadening a bit since we've all walked through a couple years of pandemic and epidemics of various sorts. So uh, people are worn out. But there is this age group I mentioned of 12 to 17 we're particularly concerned about. But there's some other age groups. We know that for um, uh, teenage girls, um, their numbers have gone higher than we've ever seen Mm. before. So teenage girls. Uh, The other we want to look at is uh, we're seeing more men, kind of 50 and above, uh, where suicide rates have really increased. Um, we're also seeing situations that sometimes are 
hard to determine. Maybe a person struggling with addiction and there was an overdose. Uh, where we don't know was, was this intentional or was it not, and so there to have really really accurate numbers, it's it's kind of difficult to know. But um, there are those that are more vulnerable. Uh, past trauma, we know that childhood sexual abuse uh, could be in the picture for many. Uh, emotional abuse. Uh, I wrote a book on emotional abuse where we looked at what's the effects of emotional abuse. Um, so that would fit under the heading of trauma. Um, we know that there are those that um, may have a physical issue, maybe chronic pain, um, that they've struggled with for many years, and it seems like um, they lose because of that pain. It distorts reality, and they become more suicidal. Those are just a few of the groups. Yeah, yeah. We're talking with uh, Dr. Gregory Jans, his latest book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. The first half of your book really focuses on understanding your loved one's desperate struggle, and that is one of our greatest challenges as an onlooker. Um, What are some common, or I should say, what are the warning signs that someone may be considering suicide? Are there things that we uh, can look to as um, a way of, of determining there may be a problem? Yes, um, and there are times where situations, they may be talking about suicide or talking about death or dropping us cues like, well, it'd be better off if I wasn't even around or uh, nobody loves me, nobody will miss me. And so they're kind of talking about it uh, in in code a little bit. So those are kind of cries for help. Um, If there's been significant loss in their life, maybe they've even academic failure for our kids or a loss of a relationship. You may see things like isolating, uh, disconnecting from normal uh, peer group activities. Um, We may see an increase in um, addiction. Sometimes online, uh, people will give us cues online about what they're thinking. Now, Suddenly, for a person to change their mood, it's like, you know, they're really, really struggling, and then all of a sudden, they seem everything seems great. You go, wow, what's going on there? Sometimes when a person has made a decision to end their life, they feel a relief. Mm. And you'll start to notice, the start to, um, maybe it seems like they're giving things away, seeing affairs in order. Um, saying goodbye kind of to people and you begin to see this pattern. It's really not unusual for somebody who took their life to go, well, seemed like he was doing so well all of a sudden. So those are some of the things that can happen. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you write about that in So Much to Live For. Now, what are some of the common myths or misconceptions about suicide? Well, one of the biggest ones really is if I talk about it, um, I will uh, give them ideas. And the opposite is true. That's really where we open up an opportunity uh, to really hear from the person. Um, we also, and, and just listening to them, so often we want to, okay, if you just do this or uh, if you react to what they're saying, you're kidding me. 
you thought about taking your life, and, and it feels like a judgment. Uh, we, they just need us to listen to them. And uh, so that's, you know, that's one of the myths. It's the biggest one. If I say anything, um, I may give them ideas. Um, you know, the, another one is, um, and this is one that comes up, well, if a person's had a lot of suicidal thoughts, uh, they're always going to stay that way. No. And so what we do is we tend to take, we tend to lessen, okay, they're, it's just the way they are. They're never going to really do it. Um, and so we need to remember that one of the myths is somebody that may have suicidal thoughts does not stay that way, they don't, or they don't have to stay that way. The second part of your book um, focuses on those who have loved ones who are struggling, helping your loved one move beyond crisis and toward wellness, which is such a hopeful thought that a person who um, is thinking about or has contemplated, which is the same thing, or has attempted suicide, um, can move past that to a more hopeful uh, future and toward wellness. Again, it's so encouraging I've had two friends commit suicide that came as a complete shock. And I have one Mm. now who has made reference to um, the possibility of ending uh, their life. So this is so important to give hope to the person who wants to help and to give them the resource to to be able to do that. Absolutely. And this is one of those um, books you go. You know, it, at first it made me go, this may be a hard book to buy because it's on suicide. Are you kidding me? Um, this is something that all of us need to have more education about. Like I said, uh, though we've dealt with situations through the years, I never knew or thought or had planned that I would ever do a book on this topic mm-hmm. until I saw the incredible need. And uh, now I'm just, I want to save lives. And each of us can do that, you know. So a person who feels suicidal, sometimes it's important just to be there. Ask questions, be with them. Uh, Don't worry about answers. It's not about trying to create answers. Um, Probably gently uh, helping them get to the right professional uh, help, um, making sure that they're safe. um, And, uh, you know, we don't, a person that's really suicidal, we don't leave them alone. Uh, but we want to make sure they get the right kind of help um, and stay their friends. Like, okay, so they went into this program and they're gonna they're getting help, but stay their friend, follow up with them, be in relationship. Uh, don't let what they're struggling with scare you away. Yeah, I think one of the fears that uh, that we have as onlookers or family members and friends is that if we fail to prevent a suicide we will then take some responsibility for the outcome. Can you speak to that? Because I think that fear prevents some people from entering into the life of someone who's struggling. Yes. Um, A lot of times you go, well, what if I would have done something differently? Mm -hmm. Um, What if I could have really helped them? Or sometimes there is, I wish I would have. So those are all statements of regret. A lot of times, uh, we need to come to a place of understanding we we cannot control what another person does. We can offer help, hope, and resources and be there, but um, we need to remember, as difficult as it is, um, that people make their own decisions, and some of this 
is so sneaky, uh, planned that that you you did do all you could with what information you had. Yeah. And that's that's important to remember that. Yeah. We're talking with Dr. Gregory Jans, his latest book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Gregory Jans. He is the author most recently. Well, he's written lots of books, but today we're talking about his most recent book, So Much to Live For, How to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. Given the statistics that we're seeing today uh, prior to the pandemic and then through it, uh, this is such a helpful and hopeful book. Uh, the second half of the book focuses on uh, helping your loved one move beyond crisis and toward wellness, something that many of us just simply give up hope on. And I appreciate that that's a possibility. And again, you make reference to uh, the verse in Jeremiah that we we cling to um, in our best of times and the worst of times. Let's talk a little bit about how we can help a loved one uh, move beyond that crisis point where we may take a deep breath and think, well, my work here is done. Uh, but uh, the ultimate goal being uh, wellness. Yes, and that's where we're going to stay in relationship with them. Even if a person receives and receiving really good help, we don't just say, well, it's all, we're all out of the woods now. We're going to stay in, in relationship with them. Um, we're going to love and care about them. We're going to uh, be there. We need to remember that this is a process of regaining strength a process of renewal, a process where whatever issues that push a person over to suicidal thinking, those issues do need to be resolved. And there is hope for our loved ones. And we've all been affected by this. You know, if it's not somebody in your family or a friend, you know, in our close circle of, of relationships, we probably know somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I was completely surprised to learn of, of two people that I had known, one I'd gone to church with, who uh, took their own life. And it, it was completely shocking and sobering. Uh, and it certainly made me think, um, could I have done something different uh, differently? Could I have said something? Was I just simply uh, oblivious to what was going on? And it, it, um, it can be a very painful thing to look back on. Yes, absolutely. One of the things um, that, oh, please go ahead. Oh, very painful. And there can be all those feelings of regret and there's feelings of uh, times anger or betrayal or they tricked me. So there's, there's a lot of emotions wrapped into this. Yeah. Now, one of the things you emphasize in the book, and I so appreciate that as a caregiver, someone who is extending uh, themselves into the life of someone who is struggling, you really emphasize it's important to take care of oneself because it can be exhausting uh, to come alongside someone who is contemplating ending their life. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, we can grow quite weary because we mm-hmm. can feel very responsible. You know, it's like if I don't say the right thing, do the right thing, um, it can weigh very heavy where we just feel like we're so responsible for this person. And so when I say we've got to take care of ourselves, uh, it's got to be a shared burden, by the way. And no, I know it sounds strange, but no 
person is is responsible for uh, saving another life. You're going to do all you possibly can, um, but again, that person will make decisions at times that um, are outside of our control, and I, that's hard to say, but it's also very true. We need to remember to take care of ourselves. Uh, we're sharing the burden. Uh, we are, if we're living with somebody that's very depressed and potentially suicidal, we want to make sure we're getting them to the right kind of help. Mm-hmm. Um, some people need to actually, um, you know, more intense, intensive help to get them through this period of time. Um, things like where they could harm themselves with weapons or is this uh, pills or uh, things that could be easily accessible. Just kind of thinking through uh, what's in the environment uh, could be important. Yeah. Now, for those who are listening who are currently considering suicide, what do you say to that listener? I would say we've, we've got to give your life a little time. And what that looks like is, and maybe you feel like, oh, I already did, you don't understand. Um, we've got to get the time to get together the right kind of help. Uh, walking through this requires some outside assistance, but it's so important uh, that we get the right, the right team with, uh, and the right kind of help. Uh, that's why we do things in, in a team setting, because uh, we need to cover all the bases. And at first, you may feel like, no, there's not hope. You don't understand. Um, the pain is too deep. I have no other option. And that's, that's that despair talking. Uh, in a clear mind, you would be saying something different. But it's so overwhelming that I just want to acknowledge, if you're struggling with it, it feels like there's not options. So allow us the time to create the right options for help. Um, I think that's the big issue is um, we feel so overwhelmed. We want to end things now, uh, but hang on. Uh, let's get the right read. This is what we do with our, our patients and clients every day. We want to put together the right plan, the right plan of hope. Now, where can our listeners connect with you online or can they? Well, find us at aplaceofhope.com. A place of hope.com and a copy of the uh, the book which i think should be in every church library and certainly in the homes of people who are concerned about friends and loved ones so much uh, to live for how can they acquire a copy you know that should be uh, your favorite uh, online retailer or hopefully in person as well so <laughs> so much to live for um, all your christian book retailers and all the traditional ones well, Dr. Jans, I know this wasn't a book you had anticipated writing, but I'm grateful that you have taken the time to do so and to help those of us who care about others know how we can uh, come alongside, be constructive, make sure that we we take care of ourselves in the process and do as much as we can to encourage and, and um, consider hope in the midst of what can be a very challenging set of circumstances. Thank you so much. Oh, yes, it's so important. Let's save lives together. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Again, Dr. Gregory Jans, his latest book, So Much to Live For, How the how to Provide Help and Hope to Someone Considering Suicide. The book is published by Fleming Ravel. Uh, it's also, uh, you'll find that it focuses on the family. It's a book that they're featuring as well, so you can check that out. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Victor Davis Hansen, one of my favorite columnists, wrote a piece titled Last Days of the Republic Policies Could Push America to Its Breaking Point. And he writes, Americans are now entering uncharted revolutionary territory. They may witness things over the next five months that once would have seemed unimaginable. I think we've already been through that. But he goes on, until the Ukrainian conflict, we had never witnessed a major land war inside Europe directly involving a nuclear power. In desperation, Russia's impaired and unhinged leader, Russian President Vladimir Putin, now talks trash about the likelihood of nuclear war. A 79-year-old President Joe Biden bellows back that his war-losing nuclear adversary is a murderer, a war criminal, and a butcher who should be removed from power. After a year of politicizing the U.S. military and its self-induced catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan, America has lost deterrence abroad. China, Iran, North Korea, and Russia are... Uh, conniving how best to exploit this rare window of global military opportunity. The traditional bedrocks of the American system, a stable economy, energy independence, vast surpluses of food, hallowed universities, a professional judiciary, law enforcement, and a credible criminal justice system are dissolving. Gas and diesel prices are hitting historic levels. Inflation is at a 40-year high. New cars and homes are unaffordable. The necessary remedy of high interest and tight money will be almost as bad as the disease of hyperinflation. There is no southern border. Expect over 1 million foreign nationals to swarm this summer into the United States without audit, COVID-19 testing or vaccination. None will have any worry of consequence for breaking U.S. immigration law. Police are underfunded and increasingly defunded. District attorneys deliberately release violent criminals without charges. Literally 10,000 people witnessed a deranged man with a knife attack comedian Dave Chappelle on stage at the Hollywood Bowl last week. And the Los Angeles County District Attorney refused to press felony charges. Murder and assault are spiraling. Carjacking and smash and grab theft are now normal big city events. Crime is now mostly a political matter. Ideology, race and politics determine whether the law is even applied. Supermarket shelves are thinning and meats are now beyond the budgets of millions of Americans. Any American president in a first casually uh, warns of food shortages. Baby formula has disappeared from many shelves. Politics are resembling the violent days, the violent last days of the Roman Republic, an illegal leak of a possible impending Supreme Court reversal of Roe versus Wade that would allow state voters to set their own abortion laws has created a national hysteria. The summer we are expecting violence. Never has a White House tacitly approved mobs of protesters showing up at Supreme Court justices' homes to rant and bully them into altering their votes. There is no free speech anymore on campuses. Merit is disappearing. Admissions, hiring, promotion, retention, grading, and advancement are predicated increasingly on um, mouthing the right orthodoxies or belonging to the proper racial, gender, or ethnic category. When the new campus um, commissariat finally finishes absorbing the last um, readouts of uh, in science, math, uh, engineering, medical, and professional schools, America will slide into permanent mediocrity and irreversible declining standards of living. And he asks, what happened? Remember, all these catastrophes are self-induced. They are choices, not fate. The U.S. has the largest combined gas, oil, coal, and 
uh, oil deposits in the world. It possesses the know-how to build the safest pipelines and to ensure the cleanest energy development on the planet. Inflation was a deliberate choice. For short-term political advantage, the president kept printing trillions of dollars, incentivizing labor non-participation and keeping interest rates at historic lows at a time of pent-up global demand. The administration wanted no border. Only that way can politicized, improvised immigrants, impoverished immigrants, repay left-wing undermining um, uh, of the entire legal immigration system with their fealty at the ballot box. Once esoteric crackpot academic theories, monetary uh, theory, modern monetary theory, uh, critical legal theory, race theory now dominate policymaking in the administration. The common denominator in all of this is ideology overruling empiricism, common sense and pragmatism. Ruling elites would rather be politically correct failures and unpopular than politically incorrect, successful and popular. Is that not the the uh, tired story of revolutionaries from 18th century France to early 20th century Russia to the contemporary disasters in Cuba and Venezuela? The American people reject the calamitous policies of 2021-22, yet the radical cadres surrounding the cognitively inert president still push them through by executive orders, bureaucratic directives, and deliberate cabinet non-performance. Why? The left has no confidence either in constitutional government or common sense. So as the public pushes back, expect at the ground level more doxing, cancel culture, deplatforming, ministries of disinformation, swarming the private homes of officials that they target for bullying and likely violent demonstration in this summer of rage we're anticipating in our streets this summer. Meanwhile, left-wing elites will do their best to ignore Supreme Court decisions, illegally cancel student debts, and likely, by the fall, issue more COVID-19 lockdowns. They will still dream of packing the court, ending the filibuster, scrapping the Electoral College, adding more states, and flooding the November balloting with hundreds of millions more dollars of dark money from Silicon Valley. When revolutionaries undermine the system, earn the antipathy of the people, and face looming disaster at the polls, it is then they prove most dangerous, as we shall see over the next few months. Again, Victor Davis Hansen predicting what we can anticipate in the coming days, as he describes them as the last days of the republic. Well, is that in fact the case? Only time will, in fact, tell. Meanwhile, the FDA has authorized a Pfizer booster for COVID shots for kids. Well, it was today that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration amended the emergency use authorization and authorized a booster dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 shot for children 5 through 11 years of age. The booster shot is 10 micrograms, which is the same dosage for this age group in the primary series, and a third of that given to people age 12 and older. Uh, The decision will now go to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for approval. On the um, 28th of April of this year, Moderna submitted a request to the FDA and the EUA uh, for its two-dose COVID-19 injection for children ages six months to under six years. Uh, When it uh, comes to COVID, public health officials have consistently downplayed and ignored natural immunity among children. Yet 81 research studies confirm that natural immunity to COVID is equal or superior to any vaccine immunity. But that seems to be irrelevant. Research shows that there is no benefit to children receiving the COVID shot. And in fact, the shots can cause potential harm, adverse effects and even death. 
According to Pfizer's own study trial data, the chance of death in children from the shot is 107 times higher than death from COVID itself. In fact, the CDC recently reported higher COVID-19 case rates have been recorded among fully vaccinated children than unvaccinated in the age group 5 to 11 since February of this year. That's the first time CDC recorded a higher case rate among fully vaccinated young children since data was first collected in December of 2021. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering today's program. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow, right here on The Georgine Rice Show. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.